everybody. Welcome to the American Songwriter Podcast Network. This is All Heart with Paul Cardall. Hi, everybody. I'm Paul Cardall. Welcome to All Heart. Today, my man, this guy, I've been watching his career since I was a young kid wanting to play the piano. Mr. Kurt Bester. He's an Emmy award-winning, Grammy-nominated composer. He's worked with countless musicians. He's arranged music for the Tabernacle Choir, Jenny Oaks Baker, and so many people. He's won awards for his music scores for the documentaries for National Geographic, for TBS's Wildlife Adventures, for IMAX Films, and of course, the ABC 1988 Winter Olympics. I've loved his music. In a way, he has been my mentor because he is also from Salt Lake City, Utah. And early on when I was getting started, I went to Kurt for advice. I wanted to figure out how to make it in the business because to me, Kurt is the business of making instrumental music. So without further ado, my good friend, Mr. Kurt Bester. Nice to see you. Well, it's better to be seen than viewed. Well, that's as true. I, as I of, tell people. It's weird, man. Planet, Planet Facebook and all the above. It's kind of like we connect but not connect. It's uh, it's strange. How are you feeling? I'm doing good. I had COVID. I know you did. That's why. Like, that's like not only why I'm asking. But. Oh. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm doing really well. It was a mild case, so I was very fortunate to get through it. And But I was landlocked there, obviously. Uh, in Salt Lake and away from my wife, which was, to her credit, she loved it. I hated it. So, <laughs> well, I don't want to get into that now. I, but I have learned. I have learned over time that sometimes uh, far is good and good from far, whatever. Anyway, it's nice to have a space. We're going to talk about that because uh, you know you're a composer. You're a creative. You're an artistic guy. Yeah. So when you marry. It's a total, like the, I don't know if we board, we, we're borderline narcissistic artists. Well, I, th- I think we have, that, yeah. and then trying to deal with creatives when you're such a common sense, down to earth person and you're married to someone who's a dreamer and a, you know, romantic, passionate, imaginative person. I, I know. I, I think my wife every once in a while dreams of an accountant with a nice, nice pension plan. But. <laughs> But I'm the yin to her yang, so you know she's. That's awesome. You'd have to meet her, but she's she hates the spotlight, and that's fine because I I need it all on me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so good to see you, and thank you for doing this. This, uh, <clears throat> you know, this podcast has been growing quite a bit. American Songwriter is the network that has propelled it. There's only, I think, a dozen. Uh, people that are doing a podcast for the American songwriter and some of the guests have been amazing and so I'm thrilled because for those that are watching and listening Kurt Bester you heard my intro because we're doing the intro but Kurt Bester is what I consider my silent mentor because He comes from the same, uh, well, he lives in the same state that I I grew up in until I moved to Nashville. And so this was the guy that was doing everything I only dreamed of doing. And so I would sit and watch and observe 
and attend concerts and pay attention, listen to every note uh, to try to figure out how can I create and capture what he's doing through what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing. So I'm really excited to share everybody, uh, Kurt Bester. And, it's great uh, to be here. I, I had no idea you were watching from afar. <laughs> I, I either should charge you or, or, you know, now I'm going to school on you, man. <clears throat> well, it was early on, obviously. Uh, you did a lot with the uh, KSL, which was the NBC affiliate. And I happened to have a father who, anytime there was a composer coming through the news station, he would tell me about this composer because I was just learning to play piano as a 16 year old imp improvising. Um, but you by then were, you know, this was, this was long at, this was about the same time, 1987, this was about the same time where you began, um, I think it was an internship with the Sundance Film Institute's. Exactly the same year, yeah, 1987 that was. And the first year, the first year I put out my, my, an album, that was the first album I ever put out was 1987. And that was Seasons? Uh, even earlier than that. Now, I put out an album, uh, kind of a local thing, but a lot of people know it, uh, Joy Spring. So I did oh, an right. album called Joy Spring, in 87, and the same year I did, um, well, actually 86, in 87, I did Eris Christmas. Okay. And that was the one that kind of uh, was funny because at the time there wasn't really a Christmas section in the store. Um, this was back when there were record stores, but there wasn't a Christmas section. And no. I talked to several different album labels and I said, hey, I got this idea. You know, there's this Mannheim Steamroller, they're the only guys that are doing this kind of instrumental thing that I kind of like. I, I'm different than that, but but in the same zone. And everybody I talked to me said, oh, it's a terrible idea. You know, that's that's like a very small niche of sell. You want to write and do an album that you can sell all year long. I said, yeah, but Christmas music is cool, you know. So I had to kind of really sell it. But that was 1987. And then, I, you know, that was really the, that that was a real pivotal time for me. So it's interesting. You should jump in about that time. Yeah, because as I started to play and, you know, had a job at a restaurant during the holidays, I'd just been playing a year. You know, everyone would talk about, are you going to the Kurt Bester concert? Because you have a tradition in Utah that we'll get into um, that has really been mind-blowing the way you've been able to pull this off year after year after year. But at that time in the 80s, New Age music had become one of the more powerful genres since then, it's kind of like evaporated into smooth jazz, and I don't even know what's going on now. It's just been absorbed by all the, you know, the mergers and acquisitions that the record industry does. And some of the labels went bankrupt right. after being embezzled from. So, but new age music was very big. You had George Winston and you had Chip Davis for Mannheim Steamrollers. So I always saw you, Kurt, as the Chip Davis of the West. Uh, you know, he, he's out in Omaha, but you were out in what what uh, some of my listeners will refer to as Zion. You yes, know, Zion, Zion, whatever we call it. Yeah, I know it's funny, Paul, because I have never, ever, even back then, I did not think I'm doing a new age album. And I wasn't even inspired. And I don't mean to say I don't appreciate these guys, but I did. I was not inspired by George Winston. 
or, or, or even David Lons, who's a friend now, but I, I, some of the people that were doing things at the time, they, I didn't really follow that. I was into uh, Dave Grusin. Um, right. I was into films, film music. And so my inspiration, honestly, and if somebody said, who's your inspiration today? Uh, I would say probably Dave Grusin, listening to the theme from On Golden Pond. Yeah. That was the thing that got me to say, hey, I love that. Whatever that is, it's not really new age. It's just kind of nice, relaxing music, but it's got a melody to it. So at that time, it couldn't officially be new age. I mean, at that, you remember at that time, sure. a lot of new age music was just music to get a massage by. And I wanted to do something a little bit more than that. So I guess for me, it's kind of cinematic music. Uh, yeah. Kind of chill cinematic. Well, it's, we were all kind of thrown into that genre. Right. Technically, because um you are correct you are totally right about your style it's more dave grusin but you know i was you you learned from him at sundance you spent time with dave at sundance what was that experience like because i know as i listen to your music i hear lots of elements of the firm and the olive and palm and there's not i don't even hide it i don't even hide the influence (laughs) i say i mean i didn't steal from him but i mean i was so influenced by him that there's a lot of little things I do, little filigree things I do up in the right hand that's kind of like Dave Grusin inspired. But so what happens is, you know, you have these people that you look up to mm-hmm. and you play like them at first because you don't really have your own style. So you kind of play what you hear and what you like. So for me, it was Dave Grusin and Aaron Copeland and, and mm-hmm. you know, film music guys like Ennio Marconi and all these people. And then little by little, you, you start to, that, all that stuff goes in your data bank and then you kind of, it starts becoming you. And the next thing you know, young guys, younger than even you, Paul, uh, start saying, they start playing and they sound like you. So it's kind of a never ending thing. But um, yeah, new age music for me, uh, it had a, re- it made a real difference. A lot of people made fun of it. Uh, I remember we used to call it air pudding or, you know, uh, <laughs> David Lawrence calls it uh, what heavy mellow, I think is his term. That's right. But it, it, and people did kind of make fun of it, but it has found its place into film scores. Thomas Newman will do some kind of things. And then you've kind of got the, uh, the arpeggiated sort of stuff that makes its way into commercials and films now. So you can laugh at it if you want, but it did make a statement. And I'm not, whatever you call my music, I'm just glad people listen to it. <laughs> I remember when I was, you know, uh, getting started, people would ask me now, are you going to grow your hair out like Kurt Bester or Yanni? Oh, look at that. I'm still, I'm still doing the thing, but. Yeah, I, I'm not as good looking as you guys, but uh, oh, I, I thought on. to myself, I thought to myself, well, at least I'll just sit down and try to play the best I can. But it's been interesting because your background, it's fascinating to me because you've been able to establish a career doing so many different things. You're a composer, you're a performer, you are also a kind of a behind the scenes entrepreneur because you can't just go out and do all these Christmas concerts and do these productions without understanding business. And well, that, and that, look, that is the start and the beginning of lots of composers and songwriters careers. They got their great songwriters but they got terrible people skills. They, they can't, 
you know, I'm not saying I'm a great businessman, but I think I understand marketing and yeah. I understand what connects people to what I'm selling. Um, and you have to do some of that, or at least be really close to somebody that does it, you know, and sometimes there are people like that guys that are kind of shy and they don't know how to, they can't talk about themselves, but they got a great manager or a great spouse or something like that to go out and, and sell it. But yeah, I, um, I've been lucky. Uh, I, I, I'm not ready to do a retrospective of my life yet, but when I look back, um, it's an interesting thing. I was going to be a film composer only. That was all I was going to do. I wasn't going to do piano. I mean, I, I was a trumpet player in high school. I wasn't even a piano player. I played piano. Right. But, um, so, but, but when I started, I just kind of went that way with the Dave Grusin influence and my first album and the first Christmas album. And then the first Christmas album meant that I had to perform. Now I'd perform when I was a kid, you know, one of those little singing groups, buttons and bows sort of thing. And, you know, I, I was a ham. I was on in theater and so forth. So it was not, it was not a usual for me to be on stage, but I had never performed music like that. But somebody said, you're doing an album, you got to promote it. So well, we did a, an album. We did a concert in 1988, I guess, was the first concert, Christmas concert. And uh, we were gutsy enough. I say we, the record company I was with, gutsy enough to say, let's book a Bravanel Hall. You know what that is. Well, that's 2,600 seat hall. I mean, I could have gone to a, a hundred seat theater at the time. Nobody knew who I was, but maybe that's the cocky part that came out when we did that. So I won't, I don't want to get ahead of you, but uh, that's, when I look at my career, the fact that I've done a lot of things is just kind of, I kind of followed my muse, you know, from here to there. Now I do a lot of arranging. I never yeah. thought that I'd do a lot of that. I don't do as much film scoring because film scoring is kind of taking a dive in the, in the, uh, how much money you can make and it's kind of it's not a real pleasant lifestyle you don't sleep for four weeks and so i kind of been just kind of following my musical muse and that and i like where it's taken me um, i don't mind the uh, bravano hall that you're talking about this is probably the most prestigious uh at the time the most prestigious right. uh hall where the symphony would perform and uh the one thing that was interesting about when you set out to do that I remember, I remember you were not necessarily a local musician. You were local, but you, you never treated your career like you were a local guy because you set the ticket price. You remember that. We talked about this when we sat at the table once. I don't know if you remember this. We sat at a dinner together. You were just getting into the business. Night, yeah, Night of the Stars. At, uh, That's exactly what I, it was. And, and I remember talk telling you, <clears throat> Paul, if you set your ticket price at a local price, you will always be the local price ticket guy. Yes. If you set your price like big time, even if you don't feel like you necessarily are, um, you will be known as that. And, and I think that was kind of a stroke of luck for me. Um, I mean, I still don't price my tickets high enough according to my manager, but, but at least people view me like a national guy who happens to live here. And that was by design. Well, what that taught me was treat your music as though it's for everybody, even though it may be a specific niche or inspired by a specific faith or, or heritage, treat it like it's for everybody and put value on it. If you if you want a Honda Accord music, you're gonna get Honda Accord music. If you want the BMW, you know, you're gonna go to the Kurt Bester concert. It was sophistication. It's actually it was a, a Tesla, class. it's a Tesla now. Okay, it's a Tesla. 
<laughs> I'm still trying to figure out the whole Tesla thing, but uh, I'm, sh- I'm sure there's some geeky science behind it. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I saw that. So I would sit and observe what you're doing. And, you know, people who come to me for advice, I'm like, go observe what your, I guess, mentors or you see them kind of, you know, you kind of see them as idols and heroes. Uh, and then you just try to pattern pattern after that. And you were one of those. Um, you have quite a heritage actually in music because your grandfather played trumpet in a lot of Midwestern bands. Yeah. Um, and then your great uncle. I mean, I didn't, he wrote, hey. he wrote, who's afraid of the big bad wolf? I mean, come on, man. That's a standard. People sing that at weddings. <laughs> and then he, he I, I, with I the, didn't know that at first. I actually, over here somewhere, I got, here, hang on a second. Talk, talk he, to yourself. Yeah, he, the great thing with him also is uh, his great uncle was in Jack Benny's band as a trombone player. So, you know, Kurt, you see his trumpets back there, a trained trumpet player. Right, you can't really read it, but here is a, a Victor, Victrola wow. that with who with Don Bester, my great uncle, on this. And somebody gave this to me, and I think it's so cool. I didn't even really know that he was, he was the trom- trombone player and conducted the Jack Benny Orchestra, and he also wrote music, so there you go. So if he, you know, he was, when did he write? When do you, th- what's around the time he wrote? Who's afraid well, of that would be that's like the 30s. 30s. The 30s, something like that. He also wrote the J-E-L-L-O theme. J-E-L-L-O. The commercial. J-E-L-L-O. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but then who owns, who owns that music today? Because obviously, well, was that a Disney thing? They owned it, they uh, bought it. You know, Who's Afraid of the, of the Big Bad Wolf was originally not Disney. I think it was used at Disney. Um, I'd have to go through my copyright stuff now. So a lot of stuff, though, back in those days has now gone past the 75-year mark. Right. And now, think like Gershwin. Uh, I think somebody grabbed onto it, but Gershwin was just is just going into public domain. Wow. I mean, like, like Bach and Beethoven, all, I mean, all, all the old guys are in public domain, but a lot of the early songs in the 20s and 30s now are going into public domain. And uh, unless, a cor- unless a family corporation grabs it, you know. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, my, my, I have a, nef- a, a relation who I met on a cruise ship named Bester, who's Don Bester's son. <laughs> I was on a cruise ship. And there was some guy down in the bottom playing the sad guy playing piano down in the lower, the lower. Yeah, deck. the lower deck. The lower deck. There's no windows. There's a few. Where the lonely, the lonely alcoholics go. Yeah, remember back when we went on cruises. Uh, anyway, there was a guy down there, and I looked at his name, and his name was Bester, and it was Don Bester Jr. And, wow. and I, I said, "Hey, we share the same last name. Your dad's not the guy that wrote Who's Afraid of Big Bad Wolf." He says, "Yeah, that's my dad." And that was so. There you go. That's, it, 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 it's that's, a song after um, all. Exactly. I wish I wrote the, that song and get the residual on that. I so, know the guys that wrote that. By the way, I don't do deviate, but I, I worked on a project with uh, Richard and and Bob Sherman, the Sherman okay. brothers, who wrote "It's a Small World." Wow. And I worked wow. with them at the at the Osmond Studios back in the eighties, and uh, they are legends. You were gonna. So you were asking me the question about Dave Bruce and what it was like to study with him. Yeah, what was it like to study with Dave Grusin? Well, and this will hold true with a few of the people that I've worked with, but Dave, let's talk about Dave because he really was my hero. 
so I had heard his music. I listened, I bought everything he had. I listened to it. I, I play, play, try to play like him. So when I met him in 87 up at Sundance, it was one of those uh, kind of I'm not worthy moments. Like, like I was, really, I was goofy. I, I, like I went up to him and I, and I just like, I just, I couldn't talk. It was embarrassing, but he's a real nice guy. And I think he could see that here was a kid that, that looked up to him. And so he kind of said, put, put his arms on and said, Hey, why don't you come and jam with us? A bunch of us guys are going to go jam up at this cabin up at Bob's Bob Redford's place. Right. And I realized at that point, Oh my gosh, he's not only a great composer, he's a, he's a nice guy. Yeah. And, and from that moment, and I did learn a lot from him, but from that moment till now, I've used his same engineer on many of my projects. And, and now Dave and, and I are friends. I mean, he went from mentor to friends. And That's Don, Don Gruson, Dave's brother, we're also friends. I've played on stage with him. And, you know, he's still my mentor, but I don't, I look at, at him now as a guy that's just a little farther down the road. He like Dave likes my music. He knows I've been, been influenced, but he likes some of the stuff I do. And so it's kind of cool how, when that happens. But yeah, the first time it was, love that. I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. That, you know, I've had several experiences where I interact with people whose music, their music is so above and beyond them right. um, that it's, you do, you freeze up and you tense up. And then, you know, if, and it's happened while I, you know, being married with Tina, Tina's like, why can't you talk? Why can't you just talk? I'm like, because you don't realize this person has like created, has pretty much made my heart beat. So right. it, has there been anybody else well, you, you uh, John, admire John that. Williams. John Williams is, is a guy that that is so above my pay grade. But I've, I, my orchestral music oftentimes is is reminiscent of him a little bit. I've been told, yeah. and I met him once briefly during the Olympics in uh, 2002 when he was in Salt Lake City, and I was doing some music for the Olympics, and of course he was, and I, I got to meet him when he was recording with the uh, Mormon Tabernacle Choir. So. He, but he was somebody that I still, I still would not really be able to talk to him. But here's the, what you need to remember, and, and I think your listeners and, and viewers here you need to remember that most people who are at that high level, they don't necessarily think they are, and and it's kind of goofy. Like when you meet fans, Paul, they come up and they they want their picture taken with you, and and it's and and they're being really weird, and you just you think this is really weird because I'm just a normal guy, but they only knew what a pig I am in the morning, you know, or whatever. Um, so that, that's all kind of an artificial thing. And D Dave Gerson reminded me of that. I'm sure that if I had lunch with John Williams, I, he'd probably make me feel right, right at home and we'd have a nice yeah. chat. But right now he's kind of like a god. Well, he's, he is one of those composers that will be remembered. Oh, oh for sure, absolutely. Long, long after those films, uh, he'll be remembered for those themes. and. Um, did you always want to do music? Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't really remember like suddenly having this seminal moment where I said, bingo, that's it. I, I didn't go from I want to be a fireman to I want to be a composer. Yeah. It was kind of just the way that I got attention. So when I was in grade school, um, I'd play the piano, you know, in the class or whatever, and, and I got attention. It's kind of how... And I was really, believe it or not, I was kind of shy when I was younger. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of how I stepped up to the plate. You know, there were always the guys that were on the baseball team and the football team. And 
I was an athlete, actually. My dad was a coach and my family were quite athletic, but I wasn't known for that. I was known for, as a musician. And, and so I never got, quite got the attention that all the jocks did, you know. Yeah. Um, I do remember in seventh grade, um, I went to my first, what we called boy girl party. And uh, the girls were, were all kind of hanging out and the boys were, all the guys were over there talking about the football game. And I went over to the piano that was at this girl's house and I just started playing like you do, you know? Yeah. And all the girls came over to the piano. So of course. Well, you know, I mean, let's let's be honest. This is why we do what we do <laughs> to some degree. Um, at least anyway, that was made I taught me that that women like sensitive guys that play piano much more than the jocks on the football team. And I'm sticking with that theory. <laughs> <laughs> I think the I think the jock is safe, <laughs> you know, because uh, I remember the first time uh, Tina, my wife, when she met me, she says, "You have a heart, you have a, a heart transplant. You're a musician. Uh, what's your FICO score?" Because <laughs> well. she worked on you know, she worked on Wall Street, so she was more concerned about reality than you know, because we tend to dream up yeah, things no. that never were before, as uh, Robert Kennedy says. Well, that's what I like about you, Paul. If you don't mind me opining a bit about what I notice about you is that you seem to be able to take that dream and lasso it to earth a little bit and just enough that the dream doesn't go floating off. So I have a feeling that has to do with Tina. <laughs> yeah, well, well, and you know, you know her, she, um, for those listening, uh, Kurt speaks Bosnian and Croatian. Yes, yeah, so, so all, all the languages of the former country of Yugoslavia. So and, Croatian, and, Serbian, Slo uh, don't speak Slovenian very much, but your wife, of course, is Slovenian. Yeah, so they've so. had some conversations and they know some words. And yeah. so it's it's fun to have that connection because you lived you lived over there for two years doing a, a, a ministry. Yep. And uh, back in 1980, what was that, Paul? 1987 to 89, back uh, back when it was, no, sorry, 77 79. It was back when it was a communist country. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I lived in Serbia for a while, lived in Croatia for a while, traveled around Bosnia, went to Slovenia a lot, went back and forth between Austria. And uh, I really love, really love that country. So anytime I meet somebody, like when I met your wife for the first time, we immediately had a simpatico because, yeah. you know, that kind of uh, connection. I don't know if Melania and Trump would feel the same way, but your wife was very <laughs> Well, when we met Melania, she she went in and started speaking Slovenian. So they were really thrilled and like... Uh, and then you just chatted with Donald. Well, he, on he, the side. he grabbed me <laughs> with his big hands and pulled me in and, and gave me this big hug. Wow. I could smell the hairspray. And, and he just looks at me and he goes, look at us. Look at us with these two beautiful Slovenians. Well, there you go. <laughs> so I said, okay, that's great. But uh, that experience of living in those countries and then later, you know, in Yugoslavia when they became countries and then Milosevich tried to, you know, the war and everything in Kosovo, that deeply affected you because you out of that created what I think your fans and the world know you for best, which is prayer of the children. 
ironically, I mean, I, I constantly think how interesting. Here I am, an instrumentalist, a uh, composer that writes mostly instrumentals, um, and I'm known for a song that is an a cappella vocal song. And, and uh, it, it's, it's kind of miraculous to me, you know. I, I, I tend not to use the word miracle too much, but I find that that, that song kind of has a, for people that don't know, it's a, it's a song that, that I wrote kind of out of frustration over the war that you're referring to, mm -hmm. the Civil War. Um, luckily, Slovenia kind of got out early, but the, especially Croatia and Serbia and Bosnia really got into a terrible war. And I was there when it was Yugoslavia, so I loved the whole country. And now they wanted me to choose a team, and I really couldn't do it. So I sat down one time, like we do, Paul, when we have feelings and we want to express it. I just sat down and started yeah. playing. I had this machine. I had just bought this vocal machine. It's a vocorder for those in the business. It takes your voice and using MIDI and splits it into parts. And I was just kind of messing around with this machine. I just kind of sat down and started playing and messing around with this vocorder. So I went, I did a little Celtic-y kind of riff. Mm -hmm. And then on, in the TV in the other room was CNN at that time. And, uh, and it was talking about what was going on in the war. And I just kind of came up with the idea that, can you hear, can you feel all these, these uh, emotions um, or these um, senses? Can you feel, can you hear, can you touch? Um, and that kind of became the hook of the tune. And I, and I just, it, it was, you know, it didn't write itself. It wasn't something like that. I worked hard, but it wrote, wrote itself pretty quickly. And the words aren't, the, you know, it's not Shakespeare. The melody isn't, you know, Beethoven, but somehow everything together, it, it just strikes a, a chord and, and kind of blows me away. It's still like a really popular choir song. I meet people all the time and, and they, they say, uh, what's your name? Well, Kurt Bess, oh, I don't know who you are. And what have you written? I said, oh, well, I've done this movie or this. And I wrote a song called Prayer of the Children. Oh, Prayer of the Children, my choir sang that in high school. And I was for a while on my website, uh, making a little like pins, like when you go on vacation, I put yeah. pins wherever the song was sung. Wow. And it became too, too much. I couldn't keep up. But it's sung in all these countries. It's sung in different languages. It's sung, uh, it just kind of blows me away. And I, I really, I'm glad. If I die tomorrow, I'll, I'll be glad that that's the song I'm known for. Well, it definitely is one of the most powerful pieces of music uh, to be, to come off this planet and to come from Salt Lake. But, uh, you know, I remember the first time I heard Holocene by Bon Iver, mm. who is also from Wisconsin. You're yeah. from Wisconsin. And I thought, I wonder if he's been over at Kurt Bester's house messing with that, that <laughs> instrument. Because, because you did this 20 years before. Yeah. And he's taken that sound and that's propelled him. Now he's playing, you know, yeah. and everybody, and even he's on Taylor Swift's new record. But you're yeah, the well, guy that you're the guy that I, created I, that. I can't take credit for it. I mean, I, oh. I I think there have been people that have heard it, but I uh, Todd Rundgren was actually doing it about the same okay. time I was. But here nor there, it's I just kind of like the feeling that I was getting playing with this my voice and this machine. It kind of yeah. felt like kind of a hip Gregorian chant, you know. And I still prefer to play it that way. It gets sung lots of different ways. I even have a piano, solo piano vocal version that I do 
but when I sing it and I really want to get into it, I, I do the original version with, with yeah. my machine. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, cool. it's, it's profound. Yeah, everybody, if you're listening, go ask Alexa to play Prayer of the Children by Kurt Bester, unless you're loyal to Siri. Um, it's okay to have two. Uh, so when it comes to music, so, but you, you know, one of the things you've done all these years uh, kind of behind the scenes is you've arranged a lot of music for the Tabernacle Choir. It used to be the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Now it's the Tabernacle Choir. You've done a lot of arranging. Did they ever do Prayer of the Children? They did. They did a per version of Prayer of the Children that I arranged for them. Um, they did it once. I haven't heard them do a lot since that time. They, they did a version, yeah. And, okay. um, and I actually, they asked me to arrange a song from Lord of the Rings, and then it went from Lord of the Rings into Prayer of the Children. Wow, so, yeah. Uh, and and it was it was cool. To be honest, though, I'm just between you and me, um, having 400 voices sing it um, at the time, they were not. I, I love the way they sound now. They're much more kind of controlled group. They they they've had a real switch since early on, and with a lot of vibratos and old ladies with you know that sound. And I wasn't really too thrilled with it the way it sounded. I was more excited like when the King Singers did it, and and when yeah. other groups like that have done it um but but i was i mean look it's it's more tabernacle choir you know i mean it was it was i was honored to have him do it you know recently also uh, a friend of mine jim daniker who produced my christmas album and does uh you know he's the musical director for michael w smith oh, yeah. he he when we're working on that christmas album he goes he goes, yeah, we got to go out to Salt Lake and do this thing. And I said, well, who's the guy helping you guys? But I his name's Kurt Bester. <laughs> so I loved it because I was like, I come all the way to Nashville and I'm hearing Kurt Bester's name. And I, I love the fact that you are, you're, you're behind the scenes so much. I don't think people realize how involved you are in so many different projects. You know, it kind of comes, honestly, it comes just trying to pay the mortgage. I, I, I mean, I, I, there are things that I'm doing that I never thought I'd do. Uh, that, that particular project, I, I was honored because I was working with Amy Grant and with Michael D. Smith, and they were doing a Christmas concert, and, and they needed, their, their conductor couldn't make it. He was busy with something else over in London, and so somebody recommended my name as somebody lives in Salt Lake, and so I learned the show, and I conducted the orchestra, so and I never really planned on being a conductor, but that conducting was something that just kind of happened with my own stuff. So I went in the studio and conducted. I used to work with a guy named Sam Carden. You know Sam. Right. Paul. A lot of your listeners who are composers might know him. Um, and he hated to conduct. So whenever we do a project together, I always got to conduct. And he would go produce in the booth. And I like it. I like It's kind of fun. It feels like ballet. You know, you're conducting and the group is following you. And it, it just... So then uh, that led me to conduct the Utah Symphony and some of my stuff, which led me to, I conducted a couple ballets, uh, one of mine and one not of mine, like classical. I did a Copeland yeah. thing with Ballet West. And I'm glad that I have that quiver in, you know, I have that arrow in my quiver because, you know, if I didn't know how to do that, I would have been called by Michael W. Smith's management. So I think that's kind of a lesson to anybody is don't say no very often. Try to say, right. I mean, unless it's something that's really you don't want to do, but try, it someone says, hey, you want to write this thing? And you go, oh my gosh, yeah, but I kind of want to. Just say yes and then figure it out. Um, yeah, that's right. 
the adrenaline right. will, will make the effort probably good. You know, if you just, I mean, don't do, don't, I mean, I'm not going to, somebody asked me to play quarterback for the Titans. I'm not going to do it, but, <laughs> but if, if it comes to it, moving around like a ballerina, you're there. Well, yeah. So there you go. I, I, what's, but, look, what's great about this is you're telling us that you've constantly been studying. You're not, you know, you obviously you've got your background learning and all that stuff, theory and all that stuff, but you've told yourself, and this is a great lesson for everybody. Let's keep learning. And then if somebody says, can you do this? You're like, yes, I can. And you study and you learn how to do that. So when it comes time to show up and clock in, yep. you're ready. Well, that's the, you know, that's the thing. I, I did go to school. I did study, but I've learned more on the street. And uh, my first gig ever professionally was I was a junior in high school and I got a call to play trumpet with the Donnie and Marie show. Um, they, they said, can you get out of school? So I, I, I skipped school, made 40 bucks an hour to play trumpet on the Donnie and Marie show. And wow. I, I mean, it was an unbelievable experience uh, besides making some money. I don't mind skipping calculus for that. And, and, and that led to the next thing. It led to the next thing, led to the next thing. And uh, I mean, there's so many examples of that, of, of just daring yeah. to try something, maybe something that was a little bit of a stretch. And then that led to, well, look, my first Christmas album led to a lot of stuff. And now I'm doing, like you said, I'm doing this show. This is my 33rd year this year. So amazing. I'm still doing it. The COVID be damned. That's right. With COVID, how is that? What's the situation well, in Utah you know, right now? Because are we doing a virtual bester? Are we doing well? A... Now, here's what. Luckily, I won't. I'll, I'll get quick to the story. Uh, some CARES money came down from the government to Utah. Uh, Utah legislature said, "Let's give some to the arts." Um, and the the Eccles <clears throat> Theater people said, "Let's take some of this money and and let's do a Kurt Bester Christmas because it would be a shame not to have it after 32 years." So they said, Kurt, would you do a show? We'll give you, we'll give you some money to pay your musicians, stage crews. These people haven't worked for like six or seven months. But here's the deal. You got to perform in the Eccles Theater, which is great. But instead of 2,500 people, we're going to cap it at 400 a night, spread all over. So it's going to be pretty, uh, you know, it's going to be weird. But it'll be, I think it's going to be one of the best shows. And I've, I've I had four nights. We all, we dropped the ticket price down to 25 bucks a head, no matter where okay. you sit. Wow. And that's because people are hurting financially. So that was part of the deal. And I'm, I'm really, and then I'm hiring these uh, singers like Lexi Walker and some of these people that your, your listeners might know who can't do Christmas concerts because of COVID. Right. I'm hiring them to be in my show as special guests. And um, we're now up to five nights. I think we'll probably cap it at five, but I'm really, really looking forward to it. The, as you know, this whole COVID thing has been weird. We're writing music, we're making music. I know you're recording stuff, but the connection, that, that connection with someone sitting five rows out with you, yeah. that, it can't be replicated on a Zoom. I mean, it just, it can't. I, we, I, you know, you've done it. We performed on the Zoom thing and whatever. Yeah. But that human connection uh, is really, I mean, it's hurting. It's, it's, I feel it in my soul. So. I did one outdoor gig in September with a small distance group, masks and everything. And it was so replenishing for my soul. It was unbelievable. I, I, when I got emotional in a, in a concert in places where just seeing the audience come in, it was amazing. So I'm really looking forward to the December show. I think it's amazing how you've created that 
Christmas show and, and you know, you've done as much as like, I think seven or eight nights, some years, but you don't necessarily tour beyond certain states because you've got this locked in. It's like a residency that every artist dreams of. Well, I got to be honest with my manager, my manager who probably watched this and he'll shake his head at this point because he would say to me, why don't you just do a solo piano show? I'll take you to every state in the country. Why, why do you have this expensive show that you can't tour because it's too expensive? Right. I said, well, I started doing this thing in Salt Lake and people like to see the orchestra and the singers and the, the big lights and everything. Um, he said, hey, we could put you in a, uh, a performing arts center, 300 people and, you know, and I think I need to do that. I would like to. So, you know, it isn't so much that I want to do this residency. Um, I would love to come and perform other places. Yeah. So, you know, anybody want me, I, I, I'll we'll, we'll compose for food. <laughs> That's awesome. Let's talk for a minute about your, your different albums. Uh, because as I started out, I was listening to Seasons. Right. You, you know, and you probably hear some of your themes in my early music from that particular album because the, you, you tend to mimic your, the people you listen to. And I think it was uh, David Lantz who said, you know, uh, musicians uh, borrow, but artists steal. And- uh, yeah. Actually, but, uh, Stravinsky, Stravinsky said that. Stravinsky oh, Stravinsky. Said, well, but David was, was taking from him. And Stravinsky said, um, yeah, a, a, a musician will steal, but a true artist, borrows from itself whatever well it's it's amazing because you, you know if, if you go into mozart and you go into all these the dead i call them the dead composers um they they stole from other people as well they take lines all the time yeah. and so this idea of sampling and all this stuff that's been going on forever they're just trying to control it because everybody wants a piece of your pie right. uh, but uh so one of the albums you did that i think was really monumental and I think the whole industry in instrumental music really needs to know this album and recognize this album and that's Innovators that you did with Sam Corden and that was pretty much to launch like Word Perfect or Word Word Perfect 5.0 they were doing <laughs> an epic release of this company the, the album's still around but the company's not yeah uh, Word Perfect was releasing 5.0 and the company at that time was trying to do some interesting things. So they hired us, Sam and I, um, to, to compose an album that was, that was kind of, it was kind of like reminiscent of what this new release was. So we thought, let's do something innovative. Let's find innovative people. So Innovators was born and there was Albert Schweitzer and there was Stephen Hawking and there was, um, I'm going to try to remember the list, uh, Sir Richard Burton not the actor, but the explorer. And the whole, the whole album is a real eclectic mix of styles, anything from classical to kind of world music to Celtic-y kind of stuff. Um, I don't know what style you call it. it and, and honestly, it was they're like little mini film scores looking for a film. But that album uh, still is, is kind of, uh, and it was very nicely recorded. Done by Don Murray, who was Dave yep. Persons. Yeah, um, we did much of it here in Utah, at a studio that I used to own with Sam uh, over at the old Osmond Studios, called the Jazz Ranch and Pinnacle Studios. Where and I then recorded we did a lot of it down yeah. in Los Angeles, using a lot of our heroes. Yeah. Oh right. And uh, like, um, I'm just trying to. I'm going to forget a lot of people, but 
Um, Harvey Mason played drums. He's a jazz, great jazz drummer. Grant Geisman played guitar. That's right, Grant. Um, we had, uh, oh, there's just a lot. lot there, James Ingram's brother sang on it. Um, we just, it, we, we had a budget that could justify it. And so we just, we Went just took our time and did an album that I'm still, yeah, I'm still proud of to this day. The musician in me and a couple other guys that were pianists at the time, we try to sit and figure out, okay, which one's Kurt and which one's Sam? Because Sam, Sam has a lot more jazz. He's right. a little jazzier. And he was kind of like a songwriting partner that you guys formed Pinnacle out of. Um, and so we would sit and try to figure out and then obviously the more orchestral stuff. And But if you're listening, uh, you've got to go and hear Innovators. It is it heavily influenced me. I remember going to the concert at Sundance. Right, right, right. Oh, wow. You did a series of those, and I, um, you know, being Utah, you would spot who's who. <laughs> um, and it was like a, one of those moments, one of those real historic moments, musically for the state of Utah, I believe, um, in what you guys created, because you had a narrator, a narrator um telling these stories and did did you guys ever record any video of that or any actually you you can go and look on youtube right now and there we did a whole show that aired on okay. pbs okay and if you can you can see probably eight of the songs chopped up song by song we had alfred woodard was the narrator that's and right. So if you go and look up, for example, my one of my favorite songs on the album is Sage of Lambarene, which is the African. Yeah, that was an amalgam of African Ghanese rhythms, a little bit of Bach influenced, that thing, and then kind of a voice choir, being like a Vienna voice choir. And watch, go to go to YouTube when we're done and check it out. You'll see a very young me conducting, very young Sam. Uh, playing the piano, and then this orchestra, boys choir, a black choir that we hired to sing, and yeah, it, it's 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 all there. It's awesome. Thanks, YouTube. Yeah, are you uh, are you working on anything new? Well, actually, uh, you, you you know, this is a little bit. I got you to blame for this a little bit. Um, I'm actually, I just, I'm recording Monday uh, a Christmas album, so I'm a little behind. Fin finally. I know. I know. Well, Finally. you told me last year, you said, hey, you know, you need to do a Christmas album. So um, I decided this year, especially because of COVID, that a lot of people couldn't come to the show. So, and I've got songs off my, my Christmas concerts that I've been recording, playing for 10 years that I've never recorded. Still, 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 all through the night. Um, I, I, I just arranged yesterday um, in the bleak midwinter, a real, I'll send you a sheet music, but I, I just finished that yesterday. So tomorrow I'm going in to do piano on a bunch of tracks. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So um, yeah, I'm a little like I said, I'm a little behind right now. I mean, no, it's October, no, no. but we can turn it around quickly. Do you own your catalog? I own all my all my own stuff. Yeah. I all made right. that decision kind of because record companies were going out of business, and I said, "Well, you're going out of business." Uh, do you mind if I take my masters or can I buy the masters for pennies? And, um, and then since I haven't had a record label connection for like 15 years, it's been just me funding my albums, which has been great because I own the masters, not so great for the marketing and the outreach, but you know, I live along. 
but uh, it'll be a good merch item this year. And um, but we can't really have a merchandise table. <laughs> so right, you'd have to spray it, pick it up with a rubber glove. You know what we're doing? We're doing an, an app where you sit okay. there in the concert, spread out, people at home, they can go to the app, they can say, I want this album, I want this baseball hat, I want this mug. And then you walk out of the concert and you say your name and they hand you a bag with your stuff in it, already paid for, wow. and you just walk out. That's beautiful. See, that's more that's of that thinking that, that. We do, that marketing and networking. That's right. How, how much of that is your management? How much is that you? Um, well, I don't be cocky, but I, I tend to be, be involved. Be cocky, Kurt. Well, you know, and it, <laughs> so it does have a reputation. Like that. Um, no, it, you don't. No, but no, but it's, I'm, I'm confident with my abilities. Uh, yeah. I tend to think about marketing a lot. I tend to think about creative things. I mean, that's what creative people do. It's right. not just creating on a piano. It's creating, you know, what if we marketed this way? What if we, what if I did a video this way? What if I, uh, even my social media posts, I try to be creative. Um, I don't just take a picture of what I'm eating all the time, you know? And I think that, uh, so the whole app thing was, it's, it's out there. There's other guys that do it, but I told my manager, instead of not having merch because of COVID, People can't come up and stand in line and they can't mingle around. We can't do an intermission based on right, COVID. Right. So, but that doesn't mean that we can't sell some merch. So, yeah. So there you go. Yeah, it, it kind of awesome. starts with me, but then I need finishers. So I need people yeah. to finish. <laughs> so as we kind of wind down here, I got two questions for you. Uh, we try to, you know, one of the things I like to ask is, when you're gone, when Kurt Bester is gone, and, well, they, like and, they've, and they've chiseled, they've chiseled Kurt Bester, you know, born yeah. in Wisconsin, you know, yeah. ends up in Zion. Um, oh my gosh! When they chisel that, what what do you hope people remember from your? You have you have a beautiful family. You've got these beautiful daughters. Um, your wife Petrina. What do you hope they all remember about Kurt? Well, I hope, honestly, I hope that it's less about the, the crowds and the fans and the, all that kind of fake stuff. I, I kind of hope that it's more about the, you know, he was a nice guy. I hope that I, I, hope that I can be known as a nice person that, that, that would do things for people or that would, that would use my music because that's what I use to, to kind of help folks. And even prayer of the children, I'd rather be known for what, what it does, not the money side of it, but for the, you know, just for the, the hearts it touched. So, you know, it sounds cheesy to say that, but um, honestly, that's, that's the best part of the concert for me. When I, it's not the applause, it's the connection with other people. So I will hope that people will remember me as someone who connected deeply with, you know, heart to heart. That's, yeah. that's, that's what I hope. I hope it's that. That's beautiful. And then of all your music, uh, if you're in a time machine, the DeLorean, whatever you're going ahead, 100, 200 years, which piece of music in your repertoire do you think? Well, uh, I did a whole album of Norwegian death metal. Uh, no, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> That sounds good. <laughs> hey, you never know. How much does it pay? I'm um, sure there's a label somewhere in a 
low-class bar in Norway that will do that? Well, actually, I, you know, we talked about prayer of the children. At, yeah. at this point in my life, um, I still have lots of years of composing, so I, I, it might be something totally different. But at this point in my life, because that song has kept its innocence and it's kept its original intent and it's been used for the purpose that you hope it's used for, um, I'm, I'm probably most proud of that than, than almost anything that I've done. You know, there are other things that I musically, like as a, as a composer, that I'm more proud of as, as a composer. Yeah. But as just a pure musician, you know, that, that song, I mean, what can I say? That, that song has a life of its own by now. Which song, the, which one do you think is your finest work? Oh. The one that you want people to hear? I mean, I know that's hard to choose because songs are like, I call them artificial children. Yeah. Because you give birth to these things and you're very attached to them. Right. So one day you feel like this and this and this. And I get asked it all the time and I hate the question, but I'm asking you. Because I, don't, I don't mind. I don't mind the question. It's just very difficult. For me, it's really hard because I have. So so I have one project I did um, that, that I did the Utah Symphony. It's called Timpanogos, A Prayer for Mountain Grace. Wow. And, and then there was another song on, on another piece of music called Utah Five Sacred Lessons. I commissioned two female poets. One was Terry Tempest Williams, a very well-known uh, writer. And then the other one's a lady named Susan Elizabeth Howe. They wrote librettos for me. And then I wrote the music for the Utah Symphony around that. The music for me, um, it takes many hears or many listens to really get what's going on. But to hear, one, one of them, the choir sings the, the words. On the other one is a narrator and she narrates. I wrote the music around the narration and the narration has its own kind of melody. So I wrote, it was really a cool thing to be able to do kind of a little Rubik's cube, but I'm really, really proud of that. Very few people have heard it. It's only been played live three times. And, um, but that it's, it's called Tip and August, a prayer for mountain grace. Take a listen at Spotify and you'll get a, I think okay. you'll get an idea of what I mean by that. And, uh, but the, the next project that I'm working on, Paul, so I'm getting close, getting close to knocking off here, but I'm working on a thing right now that I, I think I'm going to be really proud of if I can do it right. I wrote a, a children's story called Harmon E and the Missing Key. It's all about a town that has no music. And this little kid named Harmon E, um, don't know what E stands for, but cute little thing. Anyway, he discovers, he goes in a cave and discovers these things. He doesn't know what they are. They turn out to be instruments. Wow. And so he, his job, this little nymph tells him, is to go around and find people to play the instruments. So it's like Peter and the Wolf or Tubby the Tuba or some of those narrator and orchestra things. So I wrote the, it took me a long time to write this, this libretto, but I'm now writing the music for it and hopefully I'll get it premiered next year. That's incredible. And, and it's something that I can see a book being done uh, yeah. uh, and, and with an accompanying music. And I'll have to send you the libretto and let you read it ahead That's, of time. I love that. <clears throat> and and I'm, I'm really proud of it. My, my little daughter helped me write some of it, which is okay. cool. That's awesome. How old is she now? She's 11 years old now. Wow. And uh, she and mom are upstairs making banana bread. I don't That's know if awesome. you have smell-o-vision, but man, I'm, I'm headed up. That's awesome. Well, Kurt, thank you very yeah. much. Uh, obviously, people can go to your website, kurtbester.com. It's me. And ask Alexa about Kurt Bester. Talk to Siri, whichever one you're faithful to. 
and you will hear this amazing music that's inspired me. I appreciate your friendship, Kurt. Keep in touch. Always, man. Always. My manager's moving to Nashville, so keep an eye. Oh, you got to come out. I, I will for sure. I've been on there once, and that was that was a little appetizer. But I got to get out there. So <laughs> take care. When COVID's over, I'll give you a big. I can't hug you, Mister Transplant here, but someday uh, we'll, I'm good. Uh, we'll get back together. Thanks, Kurt. Have a good day. Cheers. See you.